This past week, the nation celebrated what we call Memorial Day. To so many, it's just a day off of work. It's um, uh, time for get-togethers, for cookouts, uh, sales at the mall. Uh, but for others, there's some vague connection with honoring those that have served in, in our military, especially those who have given the ultimate sacrifice of their lives for the defense of our country. But do people know uh, when and how the holiday came about? It was originally called Decoration Day. And celebrations began after which war, do you think? The Civil War. Surprise! Um, by the late 1860s, Americans in cities and towns all over the country began holding springtime observances uh, where they went to the cemeteries and they decorated the graves of fallen soldiers with flowers. It wouldn't become a national holiday until 1971. Now, Jewish people celebrate a two-day festival called Purim. Uh, it dates back to the middle 5th century B.C. It's been observed religiously ever since then. In fact, it's one of two Jewish festivals that are not commanded by God in the Old Testament Torah, in the books of law, the books of Moses. Uh, the other one is Hanukkah, which originates from the 2nd century B.C. Sometime between the late 5th century and the 3rd century B.C., an unknown author wrote down the story of the events uh, out of which Purim resulted. Uh, and that account has become identified as the book of Esther. And that's where we're going to camp for the four, next four Sundays together. Before we dive in, though, let's set the historical context within which the events of this book occur. So you have to really start with the Babylonian king, Nebuchadnezzar. Uh, he completed the destruction of Jerusalem and the burning of the temple in 586 BC. This was the ultimate judgment of God against his people as prophesied in the book of Deuteronomy. Look at this from Deuteronomy 28. Long before, God said, but if you will not obey the voice of the Lord your God, or be careful to do all his commandments and his statutes that I command you today, then all these curses shall come upon you and overtake you. The Lord will bring you and your king whom you've set over you to a nation that neither you nor your fathers have known. And the Lord will scatter you among all peoples from one end of the earth to the other. The destruction of Jerusalem. And exile of the people was God's judgment for Israel's disobedience to the covenant requirements. What happened is that they became no different than all of the pagan nations around them. And during this exile, this is when they come to be known as Jews, a name originating and drawn from their name of their homeland, Judah. But this marks the end of the glory of ancient Israel. No longer was there a temple, no longer sacrifices, no priesthood, no Israelite king to rule over them. This becomes a major turning point for the nation of Israel in their history. But God gives them a promise, even before they're taken into exile. 
And through the words of the prophet Jeremiah, God said, For behold, days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will restore the fortunes of my people Israel and Judah, says the Lord, and I will bring them back to the land that I gave to their fathers, and they shall take possession of it. So when you think of biblical history, here's some of those dates you want to remember. 586, Nebuchadnezzar conquers Jerusalem, and you'll have the, the final deportation of exiles out of the land. And then Cyrus, a Persian king, conquers Babylon in 539 B.C. Shortly afterwards, he issues an edict which permits the Jews to return to their ancestral homeland. And a portion of those exiles return along with Zerubbabel and Ezra. The stories are in the books of Nehemiah and Ezra in the Old Testament. And they rebuild the city of Jerusalem and the temple. Now the book of Esther is, is the story of Jews who chose not to return from the exile. It's a period of time somewhere around 60 years after the edict by Cyrus. And it's written by someone who's reflecting on the circumstances and the events that bring about the celebration of Purim. It's in the form of a biblical narrative, much like what we have, what we have in the Old Testament. Karen Jobes, in her excellent commentary on Esther, writes, narrative is particularly appropriate to the story of God's redemptive work culminating in Christ. Because for those living after the events occurred, all the knowledge of them is based on witness. Those who saw what actually happened told others about it, and that witness resulted in the biblical writings. She goes on, when we read the Esther narrative, we must understand it's not as if it were a newspaper account from ancient Persia, but as an interpretation of the significance of what happened. The biblical writers do not just report the bare facts of what happened. Rather, by selecting and arranging their materials, they provide the divinely inspired and therefore true interpretation intended to evoke faith in the readers and draw them into right relationship with God. So as we think about the kind of literature that Esther is in the Old Testament, it seems that we're better served if we will look at the book as a whole unit. Uh, and so I'm not going to attempt a chapter-by-chapter chapter exposition of this book over the course of our four weeks. What I'm going to do instead is look at it in its entirety and focus on four themes that come out of the book of Esther that run all the way through the story. Now, in terms of thinking about an overall, overarching theme, Karen Jobes uh, identifies this theological theme of the book this way. Throughout history, God fulfills his covenant promises through his providence. We'll keep coming back to that because that's the central idea in this entire book. The theme that I want to run with today and have you consider is a reversal of destiny. Look at this from Esther chapter 9. Now in the twelfth month, which is the month of Adar, on the thirteenth day of the same, when the king's command and edict were about to be carried out, and that was to kill all the Jews, we'll talk about that later, um, on that very day, when the enemies of the Jews hoped to gain the mastery over them, the reverse happened. The Jews gained mastery over those who hated them. 
that phrase, the reverse occurred. This is a literary device called peripety. You're going to learn a new word today. Uh, I, I want you to learn it because I want you to use it this week and impress people with your vocabulary. Um, peripety. You want to say that with me? It's a great word. Say peripety. Here's what it means. It's a term used to refer to a sudden turn of events that reverses the expected outcome of a story. That's the story of Esther. Uh, now, so let's look at the storyline. Let's, let's, let's get the big picture. And as we do it, we're going to get an overall sense of the book of Esther. And we're also going to be introduced to all the main characters in this book. So if you have your Bible, I want you to go to the book of Esther or your electronic device, or if you want to grab a Bible in front of you, page 519. You're the lucky ones. You've got the page number, 519. So it's a book right before Job. And we're going to start at Esther chapter 1. And here's where we're going to meet our first character. Look at chapter 1, verse 1. Now in the days of Ahasuerus, the Ahasuerus who reigned from India to Ethiopia over 127 provinces. He's also known by his Greek name Xerxes. You might remember that from your world history, Xerxes I. Uh, he succeeded his father Darius, who was the son of Cyrus that we've talked about, uh, to the throne he comes in at 486 B.C., so about 100 years after the destruction of Jerusalem. So here's our, here's, our, here's our playing sheet here. 586 B.C., Nebuchadnezzar conquers Jerusalem, uh, the final deportation. 539, Cyrus issues the edict allowing the Jews to return. And now 486, Ahasuerus comes to the throne. The events of the book of Esther cover about 10 years beginning after the third year of Ahasuerus' reign. So the story begins, and this is the author now that wants to explain the, the, the reason why they have this celebration. So he begins by talking about the king throwing the mother of all parties. Look at chapter 1, verse 2. In those days, when King Ahasuerus sat on his royal throne in Susa the citadel, in the third year of his reign, he gave a feast for all his officials and servants. The army of Persia and Media and the nobles and governors of the provinces were before him while he showed the riches of his royal glory and the splendor and pomp of his greatness for many days, 180 days. They ate and drank for six months. I've never gone to a, a banquet, I don't think, the last six hours. Six months. And when these days were completed, the king gave for all the people present in Susa, the citadel, that is the capital city, both great and small, a feast lasting for seven days in the court of the garden of the king's palace. Um, from historical accounts, we probably can figure out why he does this big banquet. Because we know that shortly thereafter, he begins an invasion of Greece. And so I think this is his attempt to bring in his leaders, the nobles, the governors, from this vast kingdom to get them to, to buy into what he's going to do. This is the way that he's getting their support and their loyalty for the campaign that's going to take place. Now, we know again from history that his military campaign fails, and he's going to suffer a major defeat in Greece. 
This account in Esther that's written many, many years after the failed conquest, interestingly, doesn't focus on the failure. Everybody knew about it. The author knew. His readers knew about it. But focuses instead on all the glory and the riches and the splendor of this kingdom. I think it's just a reversal of fortune that one would have not have expected peripety. And this just foreshadows all the events of the book of Esther. Now, by the end of the banquet, as one could imagine, the king is royally sloshed. He's drunk as a skunk. And he decides upon one more exhibition of his greatness and good fortune. And so we now meet the second character in the story, Queen Vashti. So the king summons his queen that he might show her off to the guests. Look at chapter 1, verse 10. On the seventh day, when the heart of the king was merry with wine, what a great statement, he commands the seven eunuchs who served in the presence of King Ahasuerus to bring Queen Vashti before the king with her royal crown in order to show the peoples and the princes her beauty, for she was lovely to look at. But Queen Vashti refused to come at the king's command, uh, delivered by the eunuchs. And at this the king became enraged and his anger burned within him. What greater way to show off his his wonder and his glory and his splendor and his riches than to parade his beautiful wife before all those gathered. But she refuses to be displayed as a piece of property before the eyes of lustful men, and the king is beside himself with rage. And so he calls his advisors together. Oh, what a volatile thing that is when you do that. Look at verse 13. Then the king said to the wise men who knew the times... For this was the king's procedure toward all who were versed in law and judgment. And then drop down to verse 15. According to the law, what is to be done to Queen Vashti because she's not performed the command of King Ahasuerus delivered by the eunuchs? Then Mamukin said in the presence of the king and the officials, not only, has the, not only against the king has Queen Vashti done wrong, but also against all the officials, all the people who are in all the provinces of King Ahasuerus. Oh, great advisors here. For the queen's behavior will be made known to all women, causing them to look at their husbands with contempt, since they will say, King Ahasuerus commanded Queen Vashti to be brought before him, and she did not come. This very day, the noble women of Persia and Media who have heard of the queen's behavior will say the same to all the king's officials, and there will be contempt and wrath in plenty. If it please the king... Let a royal order go out from him and let it be written among the laws of the Persians and the Medes so that it may not be repealed that Vashti is never again to come before King Ahasuerus. And let the king give her royal position to another who is better than she. So when the decree made by the king is proclaimed throughout all his kingdom, for it is vast, all women will give honor to their husbands high and low alike. Sure. This advice pleased the king and the princess, and the king did as Mamukin proposed. He sent letters to all the royal provinces, to every province in its own script, to every people in its own language, that every man be master in his own household and speak according to the language of the people. And that's just the way they did things back then. But this part of the story is included in the text because it sets the stage to explain the presence of the next person the next main character, who's a woman by the name of Esther. Now, chapter 2 begins with this statement, after these things. What things? It's the failed military campaign. 
And Ahasuerus returns from the military defeat and he senses the loss of his wife. Look at that comment. When the anger of King Ahasuerus had obeyed, he remembered Vashti. It took him, three, it took him all that time. And, and what she had done and what had been decreed against her. And once again, his wonderful counselors and advisors come up with a solution. Have a beauty contest of all the most beautiful women in all the kingdom, and then choose one to replace Vashti. Now we're introduced to a fourth character, and his name is Mordecai. I'm in chapter 2, verse 5. There was a Jew in Susa the citadel whose name was Mordecai, the son of Jair, the son of Shammai, son of Kish, a Benjaminite, who had been carried away from Jerusalem among the captives carried away with Jeconia, king of Judah, whom Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, had carried away. He was bringing up Hadassah, that is, Esther, the daughter of his uncle, but for she had neither father nor mother. The young woman had a beautiful figure, was lovely to look at. And when her father and her mother died, Mordecai took her as his own daughter. So when the king's order and his edict were proclaimed, and when many young women were gathered in Susa the citadel in custody of Haggai, Esther also was taken into the king's palace and put in the custody of Haggai, who had charge of the women. And the young woman pleased him and won his favor, and he quickly provided her with cosmetics and her portion of food and with seven chosen young women from the king's palace and advanced her and her young women to the best place in the harem. By the way, this is a book filled with moral ambiguities. I don't think the book is given to us to make examples out of Mordecai, out of Esther, as wonderful as times that they might be. There's, there's just a lot of moral uncertainties that goes on in these characters. And that's not the pur purpose of the author. Remember, the author wants us to understand all of the things that happen so Jews understand why they're celebrating Purim. Each of the women chosen to compete for Miss Persia went through a year-long beautification process. Ladies, can you imagine? A year. The comedian Phyllis Diller once said she spent seven hours at the beauty parlor, and that was just for the estimate. An entire year perfuming and taking care of their body to be the most beautiful women that they could be. And when her time comes to go into the king, she pleases him more than all the others, finds favor in his eyes, and he sets the royal crown upon her head and makes her queen in place of Vashti. Now, the one thing we notice, and this is important later, that according to her uncle, her adopted father's instruction, she doesn't let anybody know that she's Jewish. That's, that's a choice to be hidden here. In the meantime, Mordecai discovers a plot to assassinate the king. And, and he informs Queen Esther, who tells the king in the name of Mordecai, the two conspirators are hanged, and the account is recorded in the book of the Chronicles in the presence of the king. This, again, becomes very important later. Just tuck that fact back in your mind. And now the final character, a man by the name of Haman. We're not told why, but he is promoted to the highest position under the king. And everybody in the kingdom, as he comes by, is to bow down before him. And everybody does, except Mordecai, refuses to bow down. And it incenses Haman. Somehow he discovers that Mordecai is a Jew. 
and he determines that he's going to eradicate, eliminate not just Mordecai, but all of his people, the Jews. And so he does what was common in those days. He casts lots called poor, like dice. He's trying to find out when's the best day for us to implement this plan. And he rolls the dice over and over again, and it finally comes up 12 months later called in the month called Adar. And so he goes to the king, and he gets the king to issue an edict that's sent all over the kingdom in everyone's language, telling them that on that particular day that Haman had selected, everybody is to rise up against the Jews that are around them to kill them and to plunder all their possessions. Word comes to Mordecai. He gets word to Esther, imploring her to, position, to petition the king. And she responds to, to her uncle, to her adopted father, that no one can go into the king's presence unless he summons them at the risk of their own death. And so Mordecai responds this way. Turn over to chapter 4 of Esther and verse 13. Mordecai told them to reply to Esther, Do not think to yourself that in the king's palace you will escape any more than all the other Jews. For you, if you keep silent at this time, relief and deliverance will rise for the Jews from another place. But you and your father's house will perish. And who knows whether you've not come to the kingdom for such a time as this. Then Esther told him to reply to Mordecai, Go, gather all the Jews to be found in Susa and hold a fast on my behalf. And do not eat or drink for three days, night or day. I and my young women will also fast as you do. And then I will go to the king, though it is against the law. And if I perish, I perish. Mordecai then went away and did everything as Esther had ordered him. The story continues. Three days later, Esther goes before the king. The king sees her and he holds out his scepter to her. And then he asks her what she wants. She doesn't have a quick answer for him. She says, I want you and Haman to come to a banquet that I've prepared for you. Come. And so they go to the feast that Esther had prepared, and the king asks Esther again what her request is. And she invites the king and Haman to come and have another dinner the next day. Well, as you can imagine, Haman just leaves full of joy. He is just full of himself. He thinks this is great. You know, just the king and me, just the two of us that are involved in this thing. He encounters Mordecai on his way out of the palace who refuses to bow down. And once again, it just fills him with hatred. So he goes home and he starts telling all this to his wife and to his friends. And they have a wonderful suggestion. Build a gallows. And tomorrow, ask the king for permission to hang Mordecai. And so overnight, more, uh, Haman has a gallows 75 feet high built, maybe in his backyard, maybe out in the, I don't know, maybe out in the, uh, in the courtyard there. And now we come to the hinge point in the entire story. It's a supreme example of peripety. That night, the king can't sleep. And so he orders his staff to bring in the book of Chronicles and to read it to them. I guess that would solve insomnia. <laughs> They're reading along, and they come to this account of these two potential assassins, 
and he realizes that it's Mordecai that had saved him. And so let's pick up the story. We're now in, we're now in chapter 6. In verse 3, the king said, What honor or distinction has been bestowed on Mordecai for this? The king's young men who attended him said, Nothing has been done for him. And the king said, Who is in the court? Now Haman had just entered the outer court of the king's palace to speak to the king about having Mordecai hanged on the gallows that he'd prepared for him. And the king's young men told him, Haman is there standing in the court. And the king said, Let him come in. So Haman came in and the king said to him, What should be done to the man whom the king delights to honor? And Haman said to himself, Whom would the king delight to honor more than me? We're going to talk about that in a couple weeks. And Haman said to the king, you can just imagine you know, the machinations in his mind going on here. And Haman says to the king, For the man whom the king delights to honor, hmm, let me see here, uh, let royal robes be brought, which the king has worn, and the horse that the king has ridden, and on whose head a royal crown is set. And let the robes and the horse be handed over to one of the king's most noble officials. Let them dress the man whom the king delights to honor. Let them lead him on a horse through the square of the city, proclaiming before him, Thus it shall be done to the man who the king delights to honor. Then the king said to Haman, Hurry, take the robes and the horse, as you have said, and do so to Mordecai the Jew, who sits at the king's gate. Leave out nothing that you have mentioned. So Haman took the robes, the horse, he dressed Mordecai, led him through the square of the city, proclaiming before him, thus shall it be done to the man whom the king delights to honor. How's that for a reversal of fortune? A supreme example of peripety. That night the king can't sleep. Wow. And then that very day, Esther hosts Ahasuerus and Haman for the next banquet. And at this time, Ahasuerus asks Esther again what her request is. And Esther pleads for the lives of her people. And when the king asks who it is that had come up with this final solution of the Jews, the queen fingers Haman. The king now orders Haman to be hanged. And what a stroke of irony to be hanged on the very gallows that he had built to hang Mordecai. Peripety, a sudden turn of events that reverses the expected outcome of a story. Now there's something important here. This reversal isn't the ultimate result of any actions by the leading characters, but rather there's this unseen power behind the scene. The Greek translation of the Hebrew text of the book of Esther adds this about the king's sleepless night. The Lord took sleep from the king that night. Job's writes, the author is suggesting that beneath the surface of human decisions and actions is an unseen and uncontrollable power at work which can neither be neither explained nor Thwarted. Now, we're going to talk a lot about that next week because one of the themes that runs all the way through it, not only in this book, but in our own lives, has to do with the providence of God and human decisions and actions. So we're going to try to put those together next week, first from the book and then pull it out into our own lives as well. But the king authorizes Mordecai to issue another decree. 
in his name to all the Jews all throughout the kingdom. And it was that they would defend themselves on that appointed day. That happens exactly like that. We'll see it in the story. But Mordecai then calls for all Jews everywhere to observe their deliverance by celebrating this intervention. Jump over to chapter 9. Start at verse 23. After all this happened, so the Jews accepted what they'd started to do and what Mordecai had written to them. For Haman the Agagite, the son of Hamadatha, the enemy of all the Jews, had plotted against the Jews to destroy them and had cast poor, that is, cast lots, to crush and to destroy them. But when it came before the king, he gave orders in writing that his evil plan that he had devised against the Jews should return on his own head and that he and his son should be hanged on the gallows. Therefore they called these days Purim, after the term Pur. Therefore, because of all that was written in this letter, and of what they'd faced in this manner, and of what had happened to them, the Jews firmly obligated themselves and their offspring, and all who joined them, that without fail they would keep these two days according to what was written, and at the time appointed every year, that these days should be remembered, and kept throughout every generation in every clan, province, and city, and that these days of Purim should never fall into disuse among the Jews, nor should the commemoration of these days cease among their descendants. Peripety, a sudden turn of events that reverses the expected outcome of a story. Let's step out of Esther for a moment. Think about that. In many ways, this is the structure of redemptive history. Think, first of all, about Jesus and his mission. Expecting a conquering king who would free them from the Roman powers, the Jews reject Jesus as Messiah because he didn't measure up. He didn't conform to their expectations. The devil, seeking throughout his ministry to derail his redemptive mission, you know, we see that full on with the temptations in the wilderness as the devil tries to short circuit to circumvent his mission. We see it supremely at the cross when Jesus is crucified as a common criminal. And I have to think that in his mind, the devil believed that he had won, that the story was written, that he had stopped what God was trying to do. And yet three days later, God reverses the outcome of the story. And he raises Jesus from the dead in victory over sin and death. When we think of us as humans, we see peripety at work. You know, we've got to go back to the garden created in a state of untested holiness. Adam and Eve had everything good at their disposal, everything good for their future. And yet, in their disobedience, they introduced sin into the world and with sin, death. And all of the human race enters into exile under the judgment of God. There should be no expectation other than death and condemnation. But through Christ, there is ultimate peripety. Our destiny is reversed. The expected outcome of the story is changed. And the cross is the hinge of history, the pivotal moment where everything changes. Nowhere in the New Testament do we see this reversal so clearly, I think, that in Paul's letter to the Ephesians. Would you turn over there if you've got the Seatback Bible, 1242, Ephesians chapter 2. 
And look at this reversal in the course of expected things. Ephesians chapter 2. I'm going to start reading at verse 1. Paul says, And you were dead in the trespasses when the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work, and the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. That's the direction our story was going. That's the expected outcome of our lives as humans that are fallen people. And then we come to verse 4, but God being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you've been saved and raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus so that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace and kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. God's redemptive story is one of peripety. God rewrites the human story. And through faith in Christ, he rewrites your story. The expected outcome, indeed the deserved outcome, is changed radically forever. And instead of judgment and death, there's forgiveness and life. What glorious grace. Now, as we close, can I suggest how you can get the most out of this series over the next three weeks? Here it is. Read the book each week. Some of you, if you're in the grand narrative, you've read it. But read it each week. And as you do, I want you to look for these four themes that I'm identifying in the book. The first one is peripety. We looked at that today. The sudden turn of events that reverses the expected outcome of a story. The second thing I want you to look for is the providence of God and human decisions, and how these two are related and interrelated. Then the third thing I want to talk about is pride's destructive power, uh, the source of the original sin before human beings were even created. And we want to talk about how we have to face that in our lives. We certainly see it in the book of Esther. And then lastly, people's identification with God, and how God works with his covenant people to fulfill his covenant promises. We'll see it in Israel, and we'll see it today, Christians and the church today. So that's the direction we're going. Read the book. Immerse in the book. I think you'll just be amazed at the things as you look at it over and over again. Well, let's pray. God, thank you for preserving this book. Thank you for motivating that unknown author uh, centuries ago to write down uh, the events that, that lead to this Jewish festival that we might learn from it that we might see what you're doing in that. And through it all, that we might have a clearer picture of who you are and how you keep your covenant promises with your people. So help us not only to see the characters and the story for who they are and for what happens to them, but that we might see ourselves as well and that we might learn from that. And so thank you for the book. Thank you for these weeks that we'll explore it together. In Christ's name I pray, amen.